Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 13 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation by Rich Housick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. Chapter 45 Marsha woke up when Greg's alarm shattered the quiet of the morning. She pulled the covers over her head while her husband rolled out of bed and padded toward the shower. Since she worked from home, she didn't have to worry about getting dressed and commuting, so she usually took advantage of the extra time to make breakfast for the family and lunch for the kids and Greg. However, this morning she felt more tired than usual. She had a memory of dreams disturbing her sleep, but couldn't remember any of the details. She tried to convince herself that if she could just get in five more minutes, she'd be ready to start the day. But after a few seconds, cocooned under her comforter, she threw the bedding aside and squinted at the window, revealing the start of a bright sunny day. Marcia pulled on her robe and stepped into her slippers, then padded out of the room. Danny, Daisy, time to get up! She shouted down the hall as she made her way to the stairs. The kids were usually pretty good about getting themselves up. Some mornings she would have to help Daisy change her outfit as she had a tendency to mix her school clothes with her pajamas. Marcia didn't feel like doing anything complicated for breakfast. She scrambled half a dozen eggs and threw some pre-cooked turkey breakfast links into the microwave. She set the table and pulled out cartons of milk and orange juice. It was nice to have a family breakfast. Before they had kids, Marcia and Greg often found themselves in a flurry of separate activities each morning. Now, starting the day off together was a welcome routine. She crossed into the living room and shouted up the stairs. Danny! Daisy! Breakfast! She waited for a moment, and then when she saw Daisy pop out of her room, she returned to the kitchen just as the microwave beeped. She grabbed the sausage and set it on the table. Daisy entered and hopped onto one of the kitchen chairs. Juice, please, she said. Marcia smiled at her daughter, then filled the glass before her with orange juice. Thank you, Daisy added before taking a satisfying sip. Greg entered and popped a pod into the coffee maker and placed a mug under the spout. He put a hand on Marcia's arm as she passed him and gave her a quick kiss on the cheek. Good morning. Good morning. What is your son up to? Convenient how he's my son when he's late for breakfast, Greg observed. Is there cereal? In the pantry. Greg stepped around the table to the pantry door. He opened it and went inside, then emerged a few seconds later, a confused expression on his face. 
Don't see any. It's on the shelf in front of the window. Greg stuck his head back into the pantry for a look. Nope, there's nothing there. Marcia rolled her eyes, then joined Greg at the pantry door. She looked inside, and much to her surprise, the shelf that she was sure was stocked with cereal, pancake mix, and other boxed foods was now completely clear. That's strange, she said. No biggie, Greg said. I'll go check on Danny. Thanks, Marcia replied. She scanned the shelves on either side of the pantry, but the cereal boxes were nowhere to be found. Greg jogged up the steps. Danny, what's taking you so long? Your mom has breakfast on the table, he said loudly. He reached the landing and saw Danny's door open a crack. He pushed it open, but the room was empty. His bed was still unmade and his homework was still spread out on his desk. Greg went back to the hall and approached the bathroom. The door was closed. He knocked. Danny, are you in there? There was no answer. He tried the door. It was unlocked. He opened it and found the bathroom as empty as Danny's bedroom. Greg became anxious. He checked Daisy's room, then his and Marsha's, and finally the empty spare room at the end of the hall. All were empty. Danny, where are you, son? Time for breakfast, he said, trying not to let the growing anxiety he was feeling creep into his voice. Danny? His question was met with silence. Greg ran down the steps two at a time, nearly tripping halfway down. He looked around the living room, then crossed to the front door. He keyed in the disarm code to the keypad on the wall, opened it, and stepped out onto the front porch. Danny, he shouted to the empty yard. His breathing quickened, and his pulse raced as he went back into the house through the living room to the kitchen, trying to mask his panic with a smile. Daisy, did you see Danny this morning? he asked. Daisy, her mouth full of sausage, shook her head. Marcia shot him a concerned look. Greg walked past her toward the back door. He turned the knob and pulled. The door was unlocked. He exited to the back porch, then to the yard. Danny, are you out here? There was no reply. What's going on? Where's Danny? Marcia asked. I don't know, Greg answered. Did you see him when you woke up? Marcia shook her head. He's got to be in the house, Greg said. He turned to go back inside, but Marcia grabbed his hand to stop him. You don't think he ran away, do you? Why would he do that? Marcia felt herself starting to cry. Maybe he heard us talking last night about seeing a doctor. Greg pulled her into a hug. No, he wouldn't do that. I'm sure he's around here somewhere. Come on, let's split up. I'll check in the basement. You go through the house, see if he's curled up in a closet or something. Remember when we first moved in and we thought he disappeared? Turned out he had made that stack of boxes into a fort and fell asleep inside. Marcia almost laughed at the memory. Greg was right. He was probably hiding somewhere. Maybe he had a test or something at school and he wanted to stay home. Okay, she said. They walked back into the house, each squeezing the other's hand with hope and fear. Chapter 46 Nate stared at the large whiteboard, covered with photos, headlines, and articles surrounding a list under the heading, What Danny Knows About Maureen Everly. Each item, such as her name and address, what she looked like, where she went to school, where she used to hang out, were connected with various colored lines to the different information sources Nate had independently found on the internet and the photo stash that had been discovered in the foreman's attic. Not a single item on the list was without a matching source from Nate's cursory search. The topic of the robbery had been rehashed on several news sites, and even a couple cold case and treasure hunting forums and podcasts 
had picked up the story on the occasion of Dale Everly's release from prison. So, much of the digging up of information about Maureen and Dale Everly's lives had already been done by others, trying to find some clue as to where Maureen had hidden the missing cash and valuables from the daring heist. Dave entered the office with the day's mail. He paused when he saw the fruit of Nate's research laid out on the board and let out a low whistle. Well, looks like you have everything covered there. Occam's razor, Nate replied. The simplest explanation. Dave shrugged. Well, if you were to ask Dr. Day, the simplest explanation is that Danny got all this information talking to Maureen. I said Occam's razor, not Occam's fantasy, Nate countered. Dave walked around the large desk and approached the whiteboard. He picked up one of the markers laying in the tray beneath the eight-foot-wide board and wrote another item at the bottom of Nate's list. Location of missing loot. Danny didn't claim that Maureen had told him that, Nate said. I know, Dave answered, but I don't see it in any of the bits and pieces you found. So if he does come up with where Maureen hid that duffel bag of treasure... Nate considered Dave's point, but didn't answer. You really think a ten-year-old boy with limited computer privileges could really dig up all that information on his own? Kids are very internet savvy these days, Nate answered. And we only have his parents' word that he has limited access. Plus, who said he's working on his own? You think Greg and Marcia are putting him up to it? His mom didn't seem happy about the attention they were getting. Yes, but the father was all in on the whole ghost thing, Nate countered. But what's his angle? Dave asked. I mean, he might get some tabloid money for an interview, but he's also going to bring in a lot of interest from treasure hunters, not to mention Danny's going to get a lot of teasing at school. All I can tell you is what I learned from my time as a policeman. People do strange things for all kinds of reasons. We live in an era where people become millionaires by making videos. Money is a strong motivator. Speaking of which, Dave said, nodding at the stack of envelopes he left on the desk. More bills. Yeah. Nate sighed and started shuffling through the mail. Be honest with me, Detective Rainey, Dave said. How much longer can we keep this going without any paying clients? I know you and Dr. Day aren't telling us how bad things really are. Nate looked up and met Dave's concerned gaze. The graduate student had been through a lot with Jennifer. Even though she was a popular professor at the university, the dean of anthropology was not a fan, and she struggled to gain academic respect. The focus of her research on the paranormal was at odds with many in her department, despite being popular with the student body. I can float us for a while longer, Nate assured the younger man, but Dave didn't seem comforted. So what you're saying is we should get busy making viral videos on TikTok, suggested Emily. Dave and Nate looked over at the doorway where Emily was standing, leaning against the doorframe, eating what looked like a green burrito. What's TikTok? Nate asked. Don't sweat it, geezer, Emily replied. You just keep thumbing it on that Blackberry of yours. Nate shook his head. He actually had the latest phone from Samsung, complete with 8K video. Don't you have work to do for Dr. Day? He asked. She's teaching today. Nate still felt embarrassed about that night he had dropped her off after dining with his mother. He had convinced himself that her flirtations were more than just her usual extroverted personality, but now he knew she didn't have feelings for him beyond being business partners. That was fine with Nate. He was glad to know where he stood. Besides, he was certain her interest lay with a certain psychic, who lightly moonlighted as a male model. But if his relationship with Jennifer could help repair his relationship with his mother, that was all that mattered. Chapter 47 the lecture hall was quiet. Jennifer stood in front of the class, leaning on the wooden lectern, 
staring out at the crowd of students. Images appeared on the large screens behind her. One was a scene from Hamlet, when the tormented prince is confronted by the ghost of his father. Another portrayed Ebenezer Scrooge's encounter with the chained specter of his deceased partner, Jacob Marley. A third showed a still from Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, as the ghost of a murdered samurai tells a tale of his own death through a medium. Jennifer spoke in a slow, measured tone. Ghost stories, she began, have been around since man has been telling stories. Literature from every culture is filled with tales of the consciousness of deceased persons visiting the living. And it's not just the books, plays, and films of Western and Eastern civilization. Wherever and whenever there have been people on this planet, there has been the concept of ghosts, spirits, phantoms, dementors. Her Harry Potter reference garnered mild laughter from the students. The ancient Egyptians believed that life was only the beginning of their journey to the afterlife. They believed the soul was made up of three main aspects. The Ka, which represented the life force, the Ba, which embodied the personality, and the Ak, which in some versions of Egypt's spirituality unified the Ka and Ba, though there are other interpretations. It was their belief that the physical body was an integral part of their immortality, which led to the practice of mummification. If a family didn't have enough money to pay the embalmer for the deluxe Osiris burial package and went with the bargain plan, they ran the risk of their loved one's Ak, their immortal transformed self, returning and complaining. Nice reason to push that upsell for Grandpa's mummy. Amid the laughter, a hand shot up in the front row of the audience. Yes, Miranda? Professor Day, have you ever seen a ghost? Jennifer smiled. She paused before answering, scanning the faces of the students, watching as some of them leaned in, waiting for the reply. Yes, she said. I have, a few times. She waited for the inevitable wave of follow-up questions. Several hands were raised. Jennifer pointed to a student in the middle of the room. The young man wearing a red hoodie stood up. Did you get any pictures? He asked, then remained standing, a smirk on his face. Jennifer recognized the look, a skeptic, and for good reason. No, no selfies with a ghost. The simple fact of the matter is we don't really know if cameras can even capture what we perceive when we see a ghost. I've been in places that were known to be well-traveled by specific spirits, but not everyone can see it when it does make itself known. This leads us to believe that it's not the usual photons impinging on the retina type of sensory experience. It's something extrasensory, which, if you think about it, makes sense. How does that make sense? Red Hoodie asked. Well, if you're a disembodied consciousness, you don't have a physical body. You're just a psychic presence. And just like some people can see better in the dark, or hear sounds of higher or lower frequencies, there are people who are more receptive to receiving the impression the ghost is sending out. And just like there are people who are more able to perceive a ghost, there are likely ghosts who are better at making themselves known to the living. The skeptical student sat down, seemingly unconvinced. He reminded her of Nate, that condescending look he would sometimes give her that meant he had already made up his mind and wasn't going to change it no matter what she said. More hands shot up. Jennifer scanned the crowd and noticed a familiar face sitting off to one side, Helen Ibarra. The bell rang, signaling the end of the period. An audible groan of disappointment rose from the students. Don't forget your reading, Jennifer shouted over the din, and get started on those midterm papers. As the students filed out, Helen made her way to the front of the room. How long were you sitting there? Jennifer asked. Helen grinned. 
long enough to be reminded why I worked so hard to get your course through the curriculum committee. Jennifer sighed, then walked up to Helen and gave her a hug. Thank you, Helen. I really appreciate your help. Well, don't thank me yet, Helen said. Jennifer shook her head. What is it now? Some sort of super-secret dean veto over the curriculum committee? No, quite the opposite. He fast-tracked a number of courses, bypassing the committee completely. So my course hasn't been denied, Jennifer asked, confused. What am I missing? There are only so many courses allocated in the budget, and Dean Patterson has already filled all the available slots. Jennifer laughed. She had to. What was the alternative? I'm sorry, dear. Next year, Helen said. Why don't you join me and Heather for lunch? Let us tell you how wonderful you are. It just might cheer you up. Okay, Jennifer replied. That sounds nice. Thanks. Chapter 48 Marcia paced while Greg sat on the sofa, staring at the man across from him. Chief Lewis took careful measure of the distraught family. A missing child was not rare in this part of the state, but when it did happen, it was usually an older runaway. Why are we just sitting around? Marcia asked with frantic urgency. Shouldn't we be out there looking for him? Every officer on the force has Danny's description, Lewis assured her. He looked over toward the front door where Liam MacDonald was standing. The officer gave an affirmative nod. The best way you can help is to tell me everything you can about Danny. Where he liked to play, who his friends were, places where he felt safe. You're talking like he ran away, Marcia said. Shouldn't you be considering that someone took him? Chief Lewis rose. Marcia stopped her pacing to look him in the eye. We are considering that, Mrs. Foreman. We have detectives on the case. But I have to be honest with you. There's no evidence to support that. You have an alarm system, and it wasn't tripped. But Danny didn't know the code for the alarm, Greg said. Even if you never told him the code, a smart kid like him, it wouldn't be hard to watch you key in the numbers. The alarm wasn't disabled, Marcia asserted. He could have turned it back on when he left, the chief said. You keep telling me how bright he is, and the fact that there is food missing, just the kind a young boy might take with him, is something we would typically see in a runaway situation. Marcia turned away, shaking her head. You yourself told me he was upset about wanting him to see a psychiatrist for these hallucinations of his, Lewis added. He wasn't... Marcia cut herself off. She could feel her frustration rising. They weren't listening to her. They were treating Danny as if he was some disaffected, unhappy kid. She took a deep breath and looked at the chief calmly. If he was upset, he would have talked to us about it. He wouldn't run away. Okay, Lewis replied. I believe you. But then tell me who would want to take him. Remember, it would have to be someone who knew he was here and knew the code for your alarm. And from what you've told me, that's a very short list, and all of them are in this room. Maureen, Greg said from the sofa. Liam tried not to react. Maureen? the chief asked. Marcia looked to Greg. It's the ghost Danny talks to, he said. She used to live in this house. The chief took the revelation in stride. Ah, uh, yes, I do remember hearing there was a boy in town talking to a dead bank robber. <laughs> you think she took him? he asked, confused. No, Marcia said. But if you've heard about it, Who's to say that someone else didn't hear as well and took it seriously? Maybe they think Danny actually is talking to her. 
All you see on the news lately is speculation about what happened to the rest of the money from that robbery. What if someone thinks Danny can lead them to where it's hidden? Lois looked over at Officer McDonald. Liam remained stone-faced. He returned his gaze to Marcia. Does he know? The chief asked. Does he know what? Does he know where she hid the money? Of course not. There is no ghost. There's just a boy with an overactive imagination, she answered, casting a cautionary look to Greg. There's not much else we can do without any additional information, Chief Lewis told her. What about that bank robber? The one that just got out of jail? Marcia asked. What if he thinks Danny can actually talk to his dead wife? The chief nodded, then addressed Liam directly. McDonald, go pay Everly a call. See what he has to say for himself. You got it, chief, Liam responded, then let himself out of the house. Thank you, Marcia said. While we're on the subject, what about this psychologist you said came to the house? Parapsychologist, Greg corrected. Dr. Jennifer Day, she teaches at Cal State East Bay. Did she believe Danny was talking to a ghost? Lewis asked. She didn't reach any conclusions. She was investigating. The chief pulled out a notebook and jotted down the name. I see, he said. You might want to talk to the detective she was working with as well, Greg suggested. Nate Rainey. Lewis raised an eyebrow. Yes, I imagine I would. Chapter 49 The phone rang. Emily was perched on Jennifer's chair, organizing slides on her computer for her next lecture. She looked at the phone. It was the business line Detective Rainey had installed for the agency, the number printed on their business cards and posted on their website. And up until today, as far as Emily knew, it had never rung. Detective Rainey, phone, she said, barely raising her voice to a shout. There was no answer. Then she remembered he had said something about taking Madge for a walk. I'll get it. Emily sighed. She picked up the phone and answered in her typical monotone. Rainy day investigations. How can I help you? She listened for a minute. I'm sorry. Dr. Day is out of the office right now. The caller said something else. Detective Rainey is walking the dog. Emily rolled her eyes. Yes, an actual dog. He picks up her poop in little plastic bags and everything. Emily, who was on the phone? Nate asked from the door. Emily held up a finger. He just walked in. Who may I say is calling? After she got a response, she placed her hand over the mouthpiece and answered, Chief Lewis, from Danville. Nate stepped forward and took the phone from her. Chief, this is Nate. How can I help you? As he listened, his expression changed from curiosity to concern. Yes, we'll certainly do what we can. I'll round up Dr. Day and meet you there. He hung up the phone and stared at her for a moment. What's going on? Emily asked. Can you make a copy of the tapes and videos from the foreman investigation? Sure, Emily answered. She stuck a thumb drive into Jennifer's computer and moved the mouse around. What's going on? She asked again. What time does Dr. Day finish her class? Emily checked her watch. She should be finished right now. Nate patted his pockets and looked around the office. Where did Dave put my car keys? They're hanging on the hook in the kitchen, the one you told them to always put them back on, like a million times. Right. What's going on? Emily asked one more time. Nate stopped in his tracks and looked over at the whiteboard, covered in lists, clippings, and photos. He focused his gaze on a family photo of the foreman's. Danny is missing. Chapter 51 Maureen stood by the door to the dingy motel room where Dale had dragged Danny. 
The boy was still unconscious from the chloroform and laid out on the bed. Dale had zip-tied his wrists and ankles, covered his eyes with a rolled-up bandana, and placed some tape over his mouth. He had positioned the boy with a pillow under his head. It pained Maureen to see Danny bound like that, knowing there was nothing she could do. Dale paced back and forth at the foot of the bed. Maureen didn't have a good sense of time, but she judged by the number of beer bottles Dale had emptied that they had been here for quite a while. As each minute passed, Dale became more and more anxious. He considered using the smelling salts he had to try to wake the boy, but he wanted to wait for the chloroform to wear off on its own. Maureen had tried talking to Dale. Communicating with Danny was effortless, and she was surprised that she didn't have the same connection with her husband. They had spent years together, forming an intensely emotional bond. Danny was just a boy who happened to move into her old house, but he could see and hear her as if she was alive. Dale was waiting for someone, but who? And what did they want with Danny? She looked over at the boy, making sure he was breathing, relieved to see the gentle movement of his chest up and down. She fought the temptation to try to wake him. She didn't want him to be awake, to experience the fear she imagined he would feel when he realized he had been taken from his home and held by a stranger. Danny moaned. Dale stopped his pacing and directed his attention to the boy. Go back to sleep, Danny, Maureen said softly. No need to wake up. Just go back to your dreams. But if Danny heard her, he didn't take her advice. When he discovered he couldn't see or open his mouth, move his hands or feet, he panicked. He tried to talk, but the tape over his mouth turned it into a muffled scream. Danny, it's Maureen. Can you hear me? Danny? Maureen asked as she moved to the side of the bed. Danny nodded, feeling a little better knowing that Maureen was with him. Don't make a sound, kid. If you do what I say, you'll be back home before you know it, Dale promised. Danny whimpered. The voice was strange and menacing, but Maureen was here, so he wasn't afraid. Dale sat on the side of the bed and reached over to slowly peel back the tape covering Danny's mouth. Danny, Danny, listen to me, Maureen said. Do what he says. I'm here with you. We'll get through this together. Danny calmed down. He winced as the tape pulled at his skin, but he didn't cry. So, Dale said to Danny, People say you can see and talk to my wife. Danny seemed confused. He didn't know this man, so how could he know if he had ever talked to his wife? Dale sensed his confusion. Maureen Everly, can you talk to Maureen? Danny nodded. Dale took a deep breath. Was it true? Was this boy really able to talk to Maureen? Is she here with us right now? Danny turned his head. I'm here, Maureen assured him. I won't leave you. Dale watched Danny. It was clear that he was reacting to something or someone. He looked around the room, his gaze passing right over Maureen, but seeing nothing. And you can talk to her? Uh-huh, Danny answered meekly. She says, hi, Dale. Dale spun around to face the boy. How did he know his name? She was here. Somehow, some way, it was true. A wave of emotion swept over him. All the tears he had held in since he heard the news of Maureen's death seemed to rush out of him at once. He tried to speak, but only a wordless breath escaped. Danny scooted himself backward until he was sitting up on the bed against the headboard. Are you going to kill me? he asked. No, he assured the boy. I'm not going to hurt you. I just need you to help me talk to Maureen. Will you do that for me? Danny nodded. 
Can you ask her where she hid the bag from the bank? She can hear you, Danny said. I don't need to say everything you say. Okay, good. Dale looked around the room. Can you help me, Maureen? Can you tell me where you hid it? After a moment, Danny answered for her. She can't remember. Dale sighed. His head dropped against his chest. It doesn't matter, he said. It wouldn't be the same without you anyway. Maureen looked at Dale. She reached out to touch his face, but she felt nothing, and he didn't react. I don't remember much about that day. I remember dying, but that's all, she said to him. Danny relayed her message. Dale looked back up. Why did you go back to the house? You were free. You got away. Why? I don't remember why, Maureen told him. There was a knock at the door. Dale crossed to the window and peeked between the gap and the curtains. He undid the chain on the door, flipped the deadbolt, and opened it. Liam entered. Dale quickly closed the door behind him. Maureen looked at the man from her past. The sight of him unlocked more memories, unpleasant ones. Well, Liam asked in a low voice, is the kid really talking to her? Dale looked to the space where he imagined Maureen to be, then turned back to the officer and nodded. Shit, really? Holy crap. So, where is it? Where's the loot? She doesn't remember. Liam looked confused. What? I asked her, and he said she doesn't remember. Liam laughed. <laughs> That's it? You ask the kid what the ghost knows, and he tells you she doesn't know, and you believe him? Dale shrugged. It's over. It was our last shot, and she doesn't know. Liam took off his hat and walked over to where the boy was sitting. He spoke in a low, gravelly tone, trying to disguise his voice. You really can see and hear her? He asked Danny. Danny nodded, shrinking away from the officer. And she's here right now, and she can hear me? Yes, the boy answered. Liam smiled, then turned away from the boy. He spoke in a whisper, too soft for Danny to hear. If you're really here, Maureen, then listen carefully. If you care about this boy, if you really care about him, then know this. If you don't tell us where you hid that money, if you think you can jerk me around and keep me from what is mine, you are sorely mistaken. Liam was facing slightly away from where Maureen was standing, but his words were as loud to her as if he was speaking directly into her ear. So, you tell me where you put that bag, or your little friend here is going to disappear for good. Maureen could sense the anger in him. It was intense. Liam turned back to the boy. Maureen realized he was waiting for her to tell Danny something, to answer him. Why couldn't she remember? Her memories about that day were like shadows, floating past her, impossible to catch, to hold on to. Maybe she needed to focus, like when she wanted to travel somewhere. If she could focus on a time as well as a place. But nothing happened. She didn't have a starting point. There was nothing to connect to. The robbery. The bank. Suddenly, she remembered. She could picture herself in the bank, looking at the vault, watching Dale use his tools to drill through the steel. It had taken them most of the night. Dale opened the enormous steel door. They filled bags with cash, then emptied the safe deposit boxes. Then something went wrong. The police were on their way. Maureen managed to get out to get to her car. And then she was at the house. No, no, there was something missing. The bag. What did she do with the bag? The woods. She remembered being in the woods, 
carrying the bag over her shoulder. The woods, Danny said. He must have picked up on what Maureen was thinking. She looked at him. He reminded her of someone. Carl, her childhood friend. The one who had played in the old abandoned gold mine with her when they were kids. The gold mine, Danny whispered. Everyone turned toward the boy. What gold mine? What is he talking about? Liam asked. Dale knew instantly. Marie had told him stories about the mine she and her friends had used as a kind of hideout. There's an old abandoned mine in the hills behind the house, about a mile and a half in. Marie showed it to me once. So, no one would think to look there for the loot, Liam said, thinking. He turned to Dale. You know where it is? Dale nodded. He knew exactly where it was. Okay, you take the kid up there. Get her to tell you where she stashed it. Do we still need him? Dale asked. Liam cut him off. Take the kid, he ordered. I don't trust her. Liam looked around the room, trying to guess where Maureen was. If she really loved you, she wouldn't be playing these memory games. She'd just tell you where it was. Dale found it hard to believe Maureen was purposely trying to mislead him. You don't think she blames you for her death? Liam added. That hit Dale hard. He blamed himself for her death and wished he had the courage to ask her for forgiveness. Liam checked his watch. Okay, I uh, checked in on you. You were at the halfway house. No sign of the kid. That should give you a few hours to find the loot. Then we can get the hell out of here. The mine was sealed with concrete, Dale recalled. Well, she got in there somehow. If you have the boy, I have a feeling she'll remember. I better get back. If they start organizing a search party... I want to make sure I steer them away from where you're going. Liam pulled out his phone and pulled up the satellite map of the area around the foreman's house. Where's the mine? Dale looked at the screen, then manipulated it with his fingers, zooming out till he found the area where the mine was hidden. He pointed at it. There, he said. Liam took note of it. Okay, get the loot, we'll meet at the rendezvous and make an anonymous call about the kid. I'll be so glad to find them. We'll be long gone before they realize who took them. And what about the mastermind? It won't take long for him to learn that we found the loot. I had been planning how I'd make a getaway for 15 years, Liam said. I'd like to see him try to find me. Just make sure no one sees you with the kid. You have any chloroform left? Dale nodded. Good. Don't screw this up. Liam opened the door, checked to make sure the coast was clear, then left. Once he was gone... Dale bolted and chained the door again. He turned to Danny. Looks like we're going to have an adventure. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniac's snoozeletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.